0: Project Lawful, a.k.a. Plane Crash, by Yarwain, a.k.a. Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos, and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 39.
1: Keltham's reportedly distracted again in equity negotiations. That's great, because Carissa has decided the entire harem needs to read a bunch of Taldain romance novels so that if they can't stop themselves from thinking in romance novels, they'll at least be whatever kind the king in Taldor has commissioned to develop appropriate attributes in Taldane young women. It turns out romance novels in Taldor are not commissioned by an imperial office at all, which is itself the kind of useful thing you only learn by pretending to be Taldor. The
2: women depicted here Ioni says, after flipping through and rapidly skimming some of the books, would sit around waiting for Keltham to pursue them. Because they are so attractive, they can't help rich nobles falling for them even if they pretend they don't want it. I think what we've learned today is that when you don't have an imperial office commissioning romance novels, they're written to appeal to the most self-indulgent aspects of the reader because nobody's making the authors do anything else. The women depicted here, Paxty says, are passive, weak, stupid, lifeless, ambitionless trophies. Somebody remind me why we haven't already conquered Taldor in real life.
1: I've known Keltham for a day and a half, and I can already guess these women are not his type, says Peranza. Your parents grew up reading stories like these in our timeline, Carissa says tiredly. You grew up after hell took Chelyax to straighten us out, and you got to read normal modern romance novels in which girls win the boy. Though none of the ones in which the girl wins the boy by cleverly getting all her romantic rival's eyes gouged out, or in which the girl wins the boy by leaving him under the impression she's an important noble considering executing him unless he wins her over and not the damnation of Sir Nicolao. Actually, I don't know what romance tropes the slightly gentler Chelyaks were going for has. Maybe there's a version of the damnation of Sir Nicolaou where she's trying to teach him to enjoy himself instead of having perfunctory sex he doesn't really like, and he goes to hell once he realizes that he wants things for himself instead of only wanting whatever's best for other people. And in every disguise, she's happy and fine because she, unlike him, has been raised competent to understand what she wants and to go get it.
2: Wouldn't work as a story, Ioni responds immediately. If she's happy and fine, then there's not enough conflict from the standpoint of the viewpoint character. She needs to be struggling with her own need for violent sex, say, at the same time as she's trying to get him to want things for himself, her character needs to develop to where she's competent to understand what she wants, and the end of the novel should show her successfully going after it and getting it. Which again was basically the plot line of Perverting a Dawn*. It's the plotline of any young adult novel with a female protagonist who will, at some point, have to learn the darkness of her own desires. Ione snaps at Paxty. As you'd know if you read more than one book a year. We can work with this, though. Paxty says. Give me and Ioni twenty minutes and we'll come up with new plots for everyone's favorite romance books, with storylines that fit the new celiacs." I'll slit her throat before we get two minutes in, says Ioni. Ioni also sees a much bigger problem with that idea, but she's curious whether Sever will spot it on her own.
1: Carissa is thinking that possibly she should ever have read a romance novel— Sounds like keeping track of a lot of lies. I'd rather have one or two good ones that are very appropriate for what we're trying to accomplish.
2: Ioni nods. It's going to be interesting to see whether, or rather, how fast, Savar gets executed for heresy once she gets into the habit of noticing all the constant lies. Actually, if I can get an authorized lie on this, none of us much like reading fiction at all, Ioni says. Cheliax has been devoting too many resources to the world wound and the books written before hell took over are trash. If we talk about any fiction we've read, in front of Keltham, he's going to ask to see it. Remixing fiction isn't like redoing a spellbook with Glimpse of Truth renamed to Glimpse of Beyond. Maybe we can rush some better books from Absalom and read one a piece before Keltham gets around to asking about that so that we can have ever read a novel But if he asks before then, you tried reading novels from old Chelyax and quickly gave up.
0: Yeah,
1: all right. In that case, let's give this up as a useful reminder of how grateful we are to live in Chelyax and get back to the histories.
0: They're not going to have all that much time for it. Keltham may not be very trained to handle potential lies and gaslighting, but he was planning to be a mad investor and hails from a vastly more financially sophisticated civilization. He's not going to negotiate and compromise with Marta, and then sit down in front of an actual authorized negotiator who takes their final compromise as Keltham's starting point and negotiates a new set of moves in Chelyax's favor. This wouldn't usually happen in Dathilan, firstly because Dathilan would just seat both real negotiators directly, and second because the principles behind bargaining positions are better understood such that they'd try to have bargaining outcomes be invariant to the order in which considerations are introduced, but Dathilan does have the concept of hiding an unusually high willingness to pay so that sellers can't price discriminate against you, and sending in a negotiator who doesn't actually have the power to make commitments is a standard known failure mode to avoid. Keltham will, of course, say all this to Marta directly. None of that meta-information has any obvious rationale for keeping it secret. After that, he'll ask Marta more detailed questions about terms and conditions on Chelyak's starting offer, and more questions about the current size of Chelyak's economy and what kind of measurement difficulties they expect to run into and governance's likely willingness to pay for various goods. But he won't negotiate, except in so far as offering his own starting remark that the offered percentages of generated value seem acceptable if there's no gotchas in how profits or expenses are measured and sufficient for quick agreement from there. But he wants to understand the terms and conditions before he says for sure that the starting offer is generous. At some point, Keltham thinks, he needs to give Chelyax a lecture on fairly dividing gains from trade anyways. If he can run through it quickly, he might as well do it today and see if that saves some time on negotiating. If they know that Dathilani approach fairness in a very structured way, maybe he can just tap himself with his own truth spell and the fair division of gains from trade spell say what the fair price would be, and have them accept that. Keltham wraps up with Marta, having hardly exhausted his unending sequence of additional questions, of course, but that's just what life is like for your first few weeks in another dimension, and heads over to the library.
3: If Keltham is teaching again, Broom should be there to make sure Keltham does not teach anything which is obviously going to destroy the world. Visibly or invisibly, Broom is still within Keltham's one-day deadline for replying to Keltham's original terms. Do the great wizards know if Keltham will be able to detect Broom again today? Does Cheliax want Broom to be visible regardless? Broom goes to ask a great wizard about this. They have Keltham spells and he doesn't have Invisibility Purge, but it seems likely that's an anticipation of Cheliax not trying to sneak any Invisibility past him. They don't bother explaining that to Broom, obviously, but they tell him to be visible. If he needs to stab someone, he can go invisible for that to make him harder to stop. Broom catches up to Keltham before he reaches the library. He doesn't say anything, as he falls into step behind Keltham. The less he says, the less chances there are for him to fail.
0: Why is Keltham's life like this? He hopes the research harem is okay with brief explanations, because he sure doesn't know what exactly is classified. Keltham walks into the library with a very short, armed person walking behind him. Hi, Keltham says. This is Broom.
1: Shit, did he learn about slavery and now he's upset about it? Uh, Hello, Broom, says Carissa, sounding bored.
0: Broom will be listening in on my lectures from now on. Further questions should be directed to Broom, because I don't even know what anyone is supposed to think about this.
1: Well, he doesn't sound as mad as he'll be when he finds out about slavery. No one says anything.
0: He would have questions in their shoes. Have you, like not notice that you are confused about this.
4: I'm confused, says Meritzel. But you just said not to ask you questions, and, uh, Broom hasn't said he'll take questions. And I assume Projects also isn't taking questions about this or they'd have told us about it.
0: Right. Sorry. Not your fault. It's just... Never mind. For a start, today, I'm going to try to quickly review the way that Doth Elani learn about negotiation. Or, actually, no, before that... There's a test I realized yesterday I should run, before things go much... further. Keltham is a little worried about where exactly he is inside reality right now. It's probably just a silly worry. But yesterday, with Carissa, he thought of an obvious possible way to check on it quickly, if everyone here is honest. It might not work. But then... it might... Keltham grabs a couple of the improvised markers from yesterday and goes to the section of wall that was being used as an improvised whiteboard, with erasure via prestidigitation. Keltham first shows how to use unanchored scales, an experimental elicitation tool for when you just want somebody's intuitive strength of feeling about something, without them worrying exactly about what any numbers mean. Draw a line with two endpoints representing not at all, and all the way, and then you draw a slash through the line at the point that corresponds to your intuitive strength of feeling. You could use it to ask, how warm is this room, without people bugging you about how warm a three-in was supposed to represent. It's not perfect, obviously, but the point is that the elicitation method acknowledges that imperfection up front. Keltham then asks everybody in the classroom, including Carissa, to answer two questions, separately, anonymously, on bits of paper to fold up and mix before he looks at them. Obviously, they shouldn't consult with each other at all before answering. Obviously, Keltham promises to make no effort to figure out who wrote down what. He really does want them to write down an honest answer, though, if they write down anything at all. They can draw an X-cross on the paper if they want to openly refuse to answer. The two questions Keltham writes on the whiteboard are... How much do you have an unusual, interestingly complicated backstory or current problem that I'd find out about if I got into a relationship with you? What do you expect will be the average answer of everyone here to the previous question?
1: Well, shit. Does he expect they're dishonestly coordinating backstories? She raises her hand. Carissa? Unusual for, in my case, a third circle wizard at the world wound, and in their case, a top student at Ostenso's Academy of Wizardry. Or unusual for a random person in Golarion?
0: Now that's a philosophically interesting question. What Keltham really wants to ask is if their personal stories would seem surprisingly interesting to whoever is playing the hypothetical original LARP that this reality novel is deconstructing but they're not going to have a better answer to that than he does. Well, Keltham would be the paying player of the original LARP, so... I think what we're looking for is the expected degree to which I, a Lani, would say something like, Wait, what? after I found out. So the fact that you spent years at the Worldwound would be like a third of the way across, because it's surprising to me and matters to me while you being secretly a dragon shape-changed into a human, if you knew I'd find that out later in the relationship, would be more like two-thirds across. Maybe let's say it's only past the halfway point if you'd expect other people here to be surprised.
1: Nod. Okay, she isn't sure what hypothesis he is entertaining here. She will mark herself as less than halfway surprising if Keltham somehow learns chosen by Asmodeus to rework theology to be dath then the whole game is up anyway, and the average as less than her because she's pretty sure the others ought to be indicating less surprisingness than that.
2: Tanya is pretty sure she's not at all surprising in any way, unless they count the having sold her soul, which Keltham's not supposed to learn about. She indicates that she is not surprising and that other people are only slightly more surprising than her.
4: Merixel would like to be a shape-change dragon, or have a fascinating tragic backstory or something. Those feel like the way to be the best at this, and she'd like to be the best at this. She's pretty sure if she'd had, like, a month's warning, she could have had the best sexual fetishes, too, but that's hard to do from a cold start. She reluctantly marks down that she's not very interesting, which is incredibly painful to do, and that the average person is probably slightly more interesting than that, which is agonizing.
2: This is probably her fault, isn't it? unless Carissa screwed up even worse. Ione puts down a two-thirds mark, since she's secretly a very rare chosen oracle of Nethys and not just a hidden worshiper. She gives the general class a one-half mark, hoping that others are wise enough to realize that what they're telling Keltham, there is the expected degree of weirdness that's normal for Galarian, which influences how much he'll think is normal. Paxty puts down one-half and one-third, She doesn't have a fascinating, though ordinary, for Galarian backstory yet. But she wants to reserve space for getting one.
4: Asmodia puts down zero and nearly zero. She doesn't actually want a story. Pilar silently writes her answers. Gregoria's father is the heir to the barony of Blaines. She doesn't think this makes her very interesting. Firstly, everyone knows the man in question has a thing for that and hundreds of children. Secondly, probably most other barons are like that. Thirdly, it's not as if she's ever met the man, for all she knows her mother could be lying. If it were a duke then that'd probably count as a little bit interesting but a baron? Not really. Hopefully they'll get a good distribution of claims of interestingness so that any given girl can pretend later to have assigned a different one than she in fact did, but they can't coordinate and it's hard to guess what other people will say. Gregoria frowns at her pen for a bit and then picks at random on the unremarkable half of both lines.
0: Well, that's a very interesting response pattern. It doesn't quite fit. The LARP begins with three, five primary love interests, some of whom start out knowing about some of the others, plus a bunch of relatively normal girls who think everyone else there is also normal. Half the respondents thought everyone had backgrounds, almost totally uninteresting to a lani, which may indicate a failure of perspective-taking or a failure to process the instructions somehow. What he should have done was run a pilot of this procedure, asking about the degree to which everybody liked lunch, or something. Very helpful there, obviously correct thought, but you're arriving a little too late. Right then, Keltham says. Can I get somebody to destroy these papers before the universe notices them?
3: Broom now has additional questions. Broom needs to see the papers before they are destroyed.
0: Broom, I was joking.
3: Broom will have questions for Keltham later. Broom still needs to see the papers now.
0: They didn't consent to that in advance, and it does not seem appropriate to ask for their consent afterwards.
1: See, this is why you have to tell Keltham about Atolmans, because otherwise he will not treat Broom like an institution you shut up and cooperate with. But Carissa has made that recommendation in the strongest terms she can, and it's over her head and she shouldn't countermand it now, and also has no justification to herself know anything about Atolmans.
4: You also didn't tell us you were going to destroy them. Meritzel says. I have been assuming maybe all of our notes are going to be preserved for posterity or something.
0: Keltham reminds himself that he was previously angry at Broom for reasons that shouldn't influence his behavior this much, and tamps down his irritation. Fine. New pole. Use this symbol for destroying all notes, and then Broom can ask you to regenerate them for his observation if he wants. This symbol for Broom being allowed to look at them first before they get destroyed. This symbol if you think it's great to preserve those notes for posterity. Minimum vote, not average vote. He does have any reason, as I'm given to understand it. But, Broom, you will need to ask in advance on future occasions. This kind of after-the-fact modification is destructive of trust in implied experimental contracts. Keltham writes down the new poll and symbols on the whiteboard, underneath the previous questions. The three symbols are V and X, since it should be hard to tell what somebody is writing by looking at the motions of their quill. Drawing two slanted lines that optionally touch or intersect accomplishes this.
4: This is such a terrifying exercise, and it'd be really nice to know what Broom's deal is.
1: Idea, Carissa thinks grouchily. Kidnap, or hire, whatever. Probably hire, because if they're scared, it'll mess with the data a bunch of Taldane wizard teenagers to put through all these experiments for us to learn from how they're responding. She puts a V for letting Broom look because Aspexia Rugatone seemed to think they should cooperate with Otolmans and Aspexia. Rugaton is the expert.
2: Ioni doesn't know what this guy's deal is, but if he's here, then security wants him here, and she's not going to piss off security without a reason.
4: She puts down V. Asmodia puts down X. Paxti puts down X. Pilar writes down her own answer. Neritzel puts down X. Gregoria puts
0: down V. Keltham checks the votes, then hands the notes over to Broom. The vote was to destroy after you read them.
3: Broom thanks you, he says. Slaves learn somewhat more politeness than is usual in Cheliacs for non-slaves. Broom reads the poll results. It does not look like a situation that is not heading into an enormous mess. Broom will decide what to do about that later.
0: Okay, now can somebody please destroy the answers in a clear, obvious way, where everyone can see they were destroyed.
1: Broom, if you could set them down on the floor clear of anything, we can just light them on fire.
3: Broom swiftly sets them down.
1: Presumably, no one has lit O'Tolmans' oracle on fire, but possibly no one has told him not to worry about it. She lights the papers. Presumably, security, now using a scry rather than an invisible person, has been watching over Keltham's shoulder, and they'll have a lengthy, de-anonymizing debrief later.
0: Right then, leaving all that aside, until their plot-induced lack of mutual communication blows up catastrophically on the whole group later. I thought today I'd try to speedrun a couple of years' worth of Dathalani lessons for children about how fairness in negotiation works. On the theory that... First of all, Chelyaks could stand to get a glimpse of how Dathilani's children's training works in general, and second, that maybe if an adult with average Dathilani intelligence hears about children's training in the abstract, they can just imagine that they went through that training themselves. The reason I'm picking fairness as the topic is because I'm going to be using those structures to negotiate equity, and those procedures do tend to hope that everyone has. Mutual knowledge, common knowledge... Stuff that everyone knows that everyone knows. About how fairness works. Before I start, if I can ask the group, what does the term that fairness translates into, in Taldane, mean to people here?
4: On a concept for stupid people who think they deserve more than they can claim and hold, Meritzel doesn't say. Getting what was agreed upon. Trades where neither side is getting cheated. Rules that are applied consistently or impartially. Everyone gets what they earned.
0: How can you tell how much somebody has earned? If you make a -a one-of-a-kind magical item, what price should it sell for, so that neither side is being cheated?
4: Whatever you can get someone to buy it for, says Meritzel.
0: My shirt is a -a one-of-a-kind relic from another plane. It has no standard market price. In real life, I plan to never sell it. Ever. Though I might sell the ability to do science to it. Suppose, however, that, relative to how wealthy I expect to someday be, my shirt, one of my only memories of dath is worth one million gold pieces to me, in the sense that, if some insidious force was otherwise going to steal my shirt from me, I wouldn't pay any more than a million to protect it. Now suppose somebody else has a very weird magical spell that can take any relic of dath and immediately convert it into ten million gold pieces, no questions asked. Any price greater than a million gold and less than ten million gold is a mutually beneficial trade, in the sense that both of us are better off making the trade at that price than not trading with each other at all. But if my shirt sells for only a million and a thousand gold, I'm only a thousand gold better off, and the other person is around nine million gold better off. If my shirt sells for ten million minus a thousand, the other guy has profited by a thousand, and I've profited by a bit less than nine million. Trading at all at any price in the range, is mutually beneficial. We're both better off. But on top of that event, there's another event, a question of the exact price, in which my being one gold piece better off makes the other person one gold piece worse off. How do we set that price, then? Aren't we locked into an adversarial game where it's my interest to say, I'll only sell at ten million minus one, and it's their interest to say I'll only buy at one million plus one, Why would we say anything else when saying anything else just makes the other person better off at our own expense? But if we both think like that, the trade doesn't occur at all. What price is fair? Or to put it another way, how can two people like that agree on a trade at all? How does Galerion, how does Chelyax, think about that?
1: It hasn't come up in their books about Taldor yet, but Carissa's met Taldane adventurers and, in fact, tried to trade them things, and the answer is the same there as in Chelyak's. You barter. You say, why, I don't see why I should give up this shirt for a coin less than twenty million gold, which communicates, I'm open to negotiating a trade, but would need to be persuaded it's the best trade I can get, and the other person says, twenty million. I have a hard time believing even such a sentimental item is worth more to you than an entire week of Nefretti Klapati's time, during which she could make a dozen duplicates of the shirt and make you a personal demiplane besides, and that would only be eight million gold. And really, it seems to me like this trade is worth your time even for one duplicate of the shirt and the personal demiplane, and that would be only eight hundred thousand gold, which is what I'm offering." Which communicates, I'm open to negotiating a trade, but would need to be persuaded it's the best trade I can get. And you say, my, imagine what Nefredi Klopati would say if you tried to lowball her prices like that? I'm not sure this conversation is worth my time, if my shirt is worth so little to you. Which communicates, and you might be bluffing, you're allowed to bluff when you're doing this, that the quoted price is well outside the range that's worth it to you. And they'd better indicate that. They think there's overlap between their willingness to pay and your willingness to sell. And you iterate on this and then end up settling somewhere, the exact place depending on how competent at bartering you are and on the range of trades you both like.
0: Fascinating. (laughs) If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.